This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Hannah Fern. The pollster Ipsos Mori says we're entering a global polycrisis. Sounds bad, but apparently we're not as depressed about that as you might expect. Here with me to explain how that's even possible is Global Director Ben Page. Hi, Ben. Good morning, good afternoon. I suppose you are best known to our listeners uh, for turning up on our TVs on election nights, sort of crunching the data that helps us to understand why uh, some constituencies swing from one party to another. But this piece of work that Ipsos has just done is on a much bigger scale politically. What do you mean when you say that we're entering something called the twitchy 20s and that the world is now facing this polycrisis, as you call it? The idea of the polycrisis, which has been popularised by Adam Tooze, but is actually much older, is this idea that you don't just have one crisis, but you have a series of them. And there are effectively feedback loops going on. So you've got the inflation cost of living crisis. You've then got the energy crisis caused by Putin's invasion of Ukraine. You've got an ongoing climate crisis, all of those things interacting, and we're actually burning more coal, making, you know, so one crisis makes another crisis worse, if you see what I mean. So it's a, it's a way of describing the, the uncertainty. And I think at the macro level, the challenges, the 2020s, and it's the reason we've christened them the twitchy 20s, are a time of huge uncertainty. We've got the rebound, you know, the, the, the reopening after the pandemic, or so a surge in most uh, economies in the West, and China is having its own surge now, of course, followed very rapidly by an inflation crisis, lots of inequalities exposed by the pandemic. The inflation crisis, in a sense, just topped out what had been a decade of lost growth in many societies in the West, where, uh, you know, and take Britain, the country I know best, at the beginning of this century, only about one person in 10 in Britain expected their children to end up poorer than them. So there was a feeling generally that of rising living standards, that each generation was going to have, a, you know, there was, there was progress and et cetera, et cetera. If you fast forward through the last 20 years, through globalization and the, the economic center of the world moving to the south and to the east, and much, much lower growth in real incomes, and in some cases a shrinkage in real incomes, you ended up just even before the pandemic and all of that disruption with up to 45% of people in Britain and very similar numbers in France, in Germany, in America, Latin America, believing that their children were going to end up poorer than them. And the reason I focus on that is that's a massive psychological shift uh, from where we were at the end of the last century. And it leaves people feeling lost, frustrated, wanting governments to protect them, also sometimes wanting somebody to blame. And that all of that stuff together with all of the uncertainties that we face in the 2020s, with uh, the need to make real progress on climate reduction, which is in itself going to be inflationary, uh, with the geopolitical situation that we have with both China and Russia against America, against Europe, 
means that all bets are off pretty much. As you said, this research captures how people feel about what's going on as well. And oddly, despite everything you've just outlined, it also shows that they're reasonably happy individually. So what's going on there? Well, I think that's the nature of the human condition. If you ask people about the state of the world, it's all sort of terrible, terrible. If you ask them about their own personal situation, they're, you know, they're generally much, much happier. I mean, actually, well-being has fallen since the pandemic in, in Britain and in, and in a few other countries. But no, most people, you know, young people, even though their prospects and their chances of accruing a serious capital are much lower than, say, somebody born in the 1960s, uh, they're still, you know, still tend to be reasonably cheerful. So we're, we're personally optimistic and publicly pessimistic in a sense. Uh, and I, that, to be honest, it's always like that. And one thing you should remember is that although as we go into 2023, uh, one in two in three people globally said that 23 would be a better year for them than 2022. So you could say that's good. That figure is down from at the beginning of 2022. 77% said 2022 was going to be a better year for them. So you've always, even though you can spot something like the fact that people are more optimistic about their personal setup and their family, it's also the relative position and, and compared to the longer term trend that you should also pay attention to. I mean, with that last figure, I suppose the fact that we were coming out of the pandemic, I suppose we had some reason to feel hopeful that 2022 might look a lot different for each of us personally. That's a reasonable point. But um, but it's, it is usually higher than 65 percent. Let's put it that way. People have a tendency to optimism bias. We we also tend to believe at a more macro level, if you look at how people feel about their lives, we all think that we will tend to have better outcomes and, and significantly better than the average than we generally do, which is why the high point of your happiness in your life is generally in your early 20s and in your <laughs> 70s. And the middle bit, particularly the 40s, when you have children and your parents are getting old, uh, is generally the lowest point of, of happiness in your life in, in, if, you're, if you're a Western European. Is this the point that I disclose, Ben, that I am 40 with two children under six? Well, I, think, well, I, I, fear, I fear things may get worse before they get better. But all I would say is look at the long run, Hannah, you see. Look at the long run. Like you, I, was, I had a, my son was a teenager when I was in my 40s. And I got divorced and I was living in my mum's spare room at one point in Clapham and thinking, um, this is not, this hasn't turned out very well, has it? But you see, I knew, but because I knew about the, the profile of happy, lifetime happiness, I knew that in a few years I would be happier. And I am. And the great news is I'm, I'm 58 and I now know statistically, I now go on getting happier and happier until for about another 20 years. So I'm, I, you know, just knowing, knowing some of these things context it's something we really want everybody to think about always think about the context and the long run when you ask people what they thought of their own government all around the world you found that three quarters thought that their government and public services would provide them with far too little in terms of meeting their needs in the coming years so is there now sort of an appetite for more government involvement absolutely and i think it's something that we've seen uh, since the late uh, teens of 20 teens, I suppose. I don't know how you, what you meant to say about the 20 hundreds, the 20 teens. Yes, yeah, so since the uh, great global financial crash in 2008 and the austerity, particularly in Europe, uh, North America, etc., people have gradually switched to wanting more and more government intervention. Of course, we saw that in 
the reflation of the economy, which may not have helped individuals, but it kept the economy going after the crash, massive government spending and intervention. Then you had um, spending of buying bonds to, to, to keep liquidity going and in the economy as it recovered from the global financial crash. Then you have the pandemic. So we have de facto got activist government. It's it's one of the things, of course, that divides the um, Conservative Party because some of them like it and some of them don't. Some want to have, you know, want cakeism and others others want sound Thatcherite, what they believe are sound Thatcherite principles. But in general, very crudely, all across the world, because people are feeling uncertain, because people feel uh, that their life, their living standards are likely to be under pressure, People want government to step in and protect them. And so government is back big time uh, all over the world in different ways. People will not accept the idea of government just leaving you to your own devices. The point about trust in government is that it's been falling for a long time. Um, we issued a report a few years ago. So it's, it's popular in places I go, like Davos, to sit around and the elite sit around and wring their hands and say nobody trusts the government and business anymore. Uh, and I think you need to be a little bit careful. So overall, in Western societies, there is a long term chronic problem of trust. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily describe it as particularly new or acute. The high point of trust in government in America, which has the longest term uh, set of data that one can look at, which goes back to the 1950s, shows that the peak in trust in government was when there was racial segregation in America uh, and the threat of nuclear obliteration with Mr. Eisenhower as president in 1958. And I suspect that so lots of people trusted the American government then, but I'm not sure how many Americans would really want to live under a government that made homosexuality illegal, um, you know, had the colour bar going on in, in parts of America, uh, women, you know, not allowed to do certain things, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm, I, I think, um, uh, you know, you need to be a little bit careful about trusting government. So, so some, some cynicism is actually healthy. But yes, overall, we do have a, we do have a trust problem, but it's not, it's not particularly new. And interestingly, Donald Trump, you know, you might say he might have done a pretty good job. He was there to drain the swamp, wasn't he? Because everybody apparently before him was terribly corrupt and he was going to fix everything. Well, interestingly, despite Donald's best efforts, trust in government in the United States between 2011 and 2019, and obviously he, he went into office in 2016, it didn't actually change at all. Trust in journalists, Hannah. Uh, is, is among the highest it's ever been, despite all that stuff about fake news and disinformation. I suppose we've just been through an era where people need journalism more than they have done in terms of the pandemic providing us with information. That's an interesting pivot. Yeah, and I, and I think also with social media, with everybody being able to express their opinion, actually what you've seen is quality journalism where you know people have proper careers, places like the Financial Times, you know, etc. Other titles are available. Has actually seen rising circulations again because people want to go somewhere where they know that there, there is an effort at impartiality rather than news. As, I mean, there's another phenomenon as news as entertainment, for which I give you Fox, etc. Mm. But overall, it's interesting that actually quality news that you pay for does have a market, and even institutions like the BBC are heavily attacked you know, still remain quite, you know, when, when, the, when the chips are down, where are you going to turn out to, to look at to really find out what's happening? It's probably the BBC and not Fox. Young people were more likely to trust brands than their government, though. 
That surprised me. There is always more cynicism about government among young people. You're talking to the CEO of a public limited company who spent the 1980s going on CND demos, <laughs> and, uh, you know, shouting about shouting against various politicians outside. And now I'm terribly respectable. We need to be careful. One of the things when you're looking at generational differences, and it's why we wrote our reports called Millennial Myths and Gen Z, more mild than wild, is that you need to be careful that you're, you're, whether you're spotting a what's called a cohort effect, where a group of people are born and have a particular set of characteristics and tend to stay different from other generations, or whether you're just picking up life stage effects. Um, so young people are less trusting of government. Well, you might find that they're always less trusting of government, you know. It may be that younger people become more trusting. I think actually what we can see on this particular one is that there is a, a, a real decline in, in perceived relevance, interestingly, of government. So if you look at a statement like the welfare state was, is one of the best things about Britain, uh, people who were born before the foundation of the welfare state have always tended to, to really agree with that. And each successive generation after 1948 has gradually been less likely to set to agree with that statement. It's not that they don't want a free, free at the point of use NHS. It's not that they don't want benefits for unemployed people. It's just that it's less salient because actually they've, they've lived through a period of growth and relative prosperity in many cases. And so overall, Britain's attitudes to it are slightly different. Having said that, now that we're entering, you know, since we've entered the cost of living crisis, people are suddenly becoming slightly more sympathetic and more interested uh, to benefits, claimants, etc. What you've described there is this sort of general comfort with kind of capitalism and the power in the market as well, in, in, in terms of the confidence in business to do the right thing, I suppose. And the stat that le- leapt out at me was that 80% of people, and this is globally, not just in the UK, think that brands can definitely be a force for good. It's interesting that there aren't misconceptions or that people don't have that kind of strong bias against, you know, large, large names, given, given a lot of the, the kind of press over the recent years. I hear you, Hannah. So let's even the score. I mean, there's still a large number of people all over the world who want business to be more regulated. So they will agree simultaneously that business can be a force for good. They will agree that they want chief executives like me to stand up on, on social issues and be counted. Um, they say that they will be more likely to buy from brands that reflect their values, uh, which is why you see all this sort of greenwashing, etc. But simultaneously, they'll also say they want them to be more regulated. They want them to pay their taxes, etc. So, yes, it's not that everybody thinks capitalism is great and we can just leave it to the markets. They certainly do not think that. And But at the same time, business can, of course, make make positive changes. And, the, the you know, sometimes I you know, I feel... As a you know, we're okay. We're we're what's called a mid cap. We only employ twenty thousand people. Um, but the, you know, companies like mine are making efforts, for example, to be better employers, to look after people better, to employ, to give people from different communities more opportunities, to make sure that our hiring is more diverse, to raise money for charity. Uh, these are all things that didn't happen when I was young in the nineteen eighties, uh, and they do now. So, you know, I think I think personally, and I would say this, wouldn't I? I'm a CEO of a PLC. I do think business can be a force for good. But at the same time, business needs to be regulated. Markets need to be regulated and the public get that too. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. 
From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Talking of greenwashing, everyone in the survey basically agreed there's a climate crisis. So it's a real relief to see that globally we're at a point where everybody understands our situation. But despite that, half of people said, and this was a quote, that scientists don't know what they're talking about. Now, that's a bit troubling. Which scientists do they mean when they're referring to that? Well, I think this is the question. And this is a bit of the um, the tendency of some news channels to do sort of what about you. So you feel that, you know, for every, you must always present an argument. So if you have somebody on climate change, you have one person representing the 96% or more of scientists who agree it's present, it's happening, and it's a clear and present danger. But you then feel, in, in the interest of balance, that you must find somebody else to represent the 4% of scientists who disagree. And it's more interesting having two people having an argument about something than it is actually just mm. having you know, climate change. It's happening. False equivalence, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so that I think that that is what, and of course, people pick up on on some of that. We did a piece of work, interestingly, last year on conspiracy theories, because as people involved heavily in running COVID testing programs during the pandemic, uh, I was personally attacked as being involved in all sorts of conspiracies. Uh, so I thought we'd do some work looking. And we found the majority of people actually do pay attention to conspiracy theories, even if they don't um, completely believe them, you know, so that, you know, Princess Diana was killed by MI6 or whatever it was. Aliens are visiting the earth, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> uh, and so it's, it's just that there, but there are a sizable proportion of people who believe there's sort of there's something there. And some of that's because of distrust of the establishment. I think the other interesting thing about, about some of this is that people want to believe that there is actually order. That's one thing. Humanity doesn't like to believe that so much of their lives is dictated by random chance mm. and that something like the pandemic can cause uh, absolute chaos out of the blue. And so they like to believe maybe actually it's somebody's got an evil plot. And then that's sort of reassuring in a way. I guess the pandemic did really remind us of the way that everything can turn in a second and there is no certainty, in fact. The pandemic, for that exact reason, really affected mental health. And one in eight people globally, according to your study, now report suffering from mental illness. Is that figure something that suggests we are actually fundamentally unhappier than we once were? Or are we just now more willing to answer that question? Yes, because we're, we're open and we kind of understand about mental health. And that's just beyond the UK, but actually across the West. So yes and yes. I think there's, I would say there are, there are sort of three things happening. So one is that I think mental health is worse. People are feeling under pressure when there's, a, when there's economic uncertainty of the sort that we're all going, many societies are going through and the upheaval of the pandemic, is, it's got worse. But absolutely, as you've identified, the taboo about talking about mental health has uh, been literally eliminated in many, or very much reduced in a, in a large number, particularly of Western countries. And in quite short period of time, that's happened very quickly. Absolutely. It went from being something people didn't talk about to being seen as the number one thing the National Health Service should spend more money on in about six to eight years, partly because of Prince William and Harry, as well as campaigners talking about you know, the death of their mother. So the, the atmosphere has completely changed. And I think, and I think the other thing is that the, the pandemic, in many ways, was a type of liminal moment, uh, a change from one type of thing to another. So, for for millions of people, billions of people, potentially, the uh, it was the end of a nine to five office life, 
for seven, five days a week. And it's mo- work has moved to a much more fluid type of setting. So it really, there really is a before and after COVID thing there. But also, of course, it made people appraise their situations. Oh, do I really like going to that job on the two hour, my two hour drive to Sao Paulo to do that job for, you know, extra? Actually, I'm not, I'm not so sure. So I think the, the, the overall impacts of the, of the pandemic and the inflation that followed it are we're too, we're too close to the trees to see the forest in terms of the political implications of you know what exactly people want you know how does this desire for a more activist government play out at a time when government uh, when debt governments are carrying huge amounts of debt they don't have the flexibility that say you know in some governments incoming governments in the 1990s would have had in a di- in a completely different economic situation but how how does that all that play out and it does feel that we're in a moment of transition you know the Antonio Gramsci quote, you know, uh, the old order is dying, mm. the new order is not yet ready to be born. <laughs> and so there are new, but, and so that the whole state of things exhibits all these pathologies at the moment. It, it does feel like we're in one of those moments, a bit like the, the moment when we gave up on uh, full employment in the, in the late 1970s, or when we decided that actually we did need a welfare state from the late 1930s through through the through World War II until it came, it was finally born at the end of World War II in many European countries. So we're in. We it feels to me like we're in that type of moment. But of course, exactly what it, the future holds, I don't know, and you don't know. No, and one thing I suppose that will shape that is what's going on in terms of the world's conflicts, particularly Russia and Ukraine. And are people worried about that war expanding, spreading? And what do they report on that? Of course. There's a lot of people, of course, who are expecting a nuclear device to be let off. So let's hope that they're um, they're wrong on that one. I mean, on Ukraine, I think people have remained overall remarkably sympathetic to the Ukrainians. Uh, they have done a storming game in terms of engaging people across the world. And it's had, of course, precisely the opposite effect to the one that, that it wanted to, uh, that Putin wanted. At the same time, you know, if you look at how much Western governments have spent on aid for Ukraine uh, compared to, say, protecting people's heating bills, it's a tiny, tiny fraction. So we'll we'll see how it how it plays out. But no, the British public, public all over the world, in the West, but not so much everywhere else. And that's a key that's a key point. And I, sitting in Paris, for example, the way the French regard Ukraine and Russia is very different from how people in in Britain or America regard it. And when you go to India or Saudi Arabia, it's different again. So it's important to remember that. But the West is is pretty much sticking behind Ukraine, despite real concerns. And we've got, I think, 48% of people globally think that nuclear weapons will be used this year. It's only a minority in Britain and France and, uh, you know, Romania and Hungary and Poland and places like that who are quite close to it. And for some reason, it's the Indonesians and Peruvians and Colombians who are most likely to think it. But either way, there's certainly a lot of anxiety about it. I mean, that's a sobering point at which to leave it. Thanks so much, Ben, for unpicking all of that for us. Pleasure. The Bunker is free to download, but if you like what you're hearing and you want to make sure there's more where this one came from, then you can back us on Patreon. Just choose the amount you want to donate and help us keep bringing you podcasts. I'm Hannah Fern, and thanks for listening. The Bunker Daily was presented by Hannah Fern. 
The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis. And additional production was by Kasia Tomashevich and me, Alex Reese. Art direction by James Parrott. Music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. 